Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason here for Educational Renaissance. Today, I'd like to continue in my series on why the history of narration matters. Uh, If you remember, last time around, I started out by discussing um, the history of narration and why I think that makes a difference for both Charlotte Mason educators and classical educators and how we can agree and get along and interact with one another. I, in particular, unpacked the problem or question of whether or not Charlotte Mason actually discovered narration. And I think this is important because she does claim in some places to have done something very like discovering narration. What I think she was actually claiming is to have discovered a way of using narration in education as a centerpiece learning strategy. And um, and that she had discovered this problem of attention, how to solve the problem of getting students to attend day in, day out, week in and week out, so that they actually learn as much as possible. But I don't think she discovered narration in itself, and that's because there's this rich history of narration-like practices being used that I'd like to start to unpack today. And I think this history matters because, as I said before, there's this dividing wall between Masonites on the one hand and classical educators on the other. And there aren't many people going across, at least as of right now. And I think if we had some dialogue between the two, it would help each group. I'm not trying to convert anybody to one side or the other. But I think if, for instance, Charlotte Mason educators had a sense of what Charlotte Mason was doing, if they could envision more clearly how she had taken things from the past in the classical tradition and applied them to her context in Victorian England, then I think they can carry on her work, her legacy, in a better way with that awareness. I think narration is a good test case for that. In a similar way for classical educators, um, for those who are trying to approach narration in particular, Seeing that narration is part of this broader classical tradition, even if it was applied in specific ways by Charlotte Mason, will probably put the edge off of it or allay any fears that classical educators might have about considering narration as a central learning strategy for their classrooms. And I think it'll also potentially open us up to having dialogue, to considering Charlotte Mason as an important thinker in the classical education tradition to bring to the table of the great conversation about education. So I think this is a great moment here, and I'd like to dive further into now the question of where did narration come from? And I wanna do that by looking at narration's classical roots. Narration as a practice has roots in the classical era. And uh, in particular, in the rhetorical tradition, or the rhetorical and grammatical tradition. So let me go ahead and unpack that. In my own um, experience of learning about these things, I've been, you know, for most of my career at a Charlotte Mason classical school. So I'm kind of in the aisle between these two camps that I was describing earlier. But 
Sometime in, I actually first encountered narration pre-Charlotte Mason in John Locke. John Locke's Some Thoughts Concerning Education. I was surprised to see a bunch of different ideas that uh, Locke was addressing that I had read previously in Charlotte Mason. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, perhaps he was a source for her as she talked about habit training, how we shouldn't just use rules to try and get students to do things, um, the importance of attention, and so on. And uh, when I came across a passage in John Locke on rhetoric, where he talked about narration, I was just amazed. I was floored. But uh, later on after that, I actually found statements very similar in Quintilian. Quintilian was a famous Roman orator in the first century AD, um, operated on the coast of Spain, but one of the greats. And he wrote our longest work on education from the ancient world, where he goes in detail. And so that was the kind of next place that I found narration where he recommended that the fables of Aesop, for instance, be narrated. And uh, that's a great place to start because those fables, if you've encountered them, are nice, short and crisp and great things for young children to take in and begin telling. Little did I know that before that, narration had had a further or deeper root. And um, I needed the help of a rhetorical scholar to get there, George A. Kennedy, the, uh, a distinguished professor of classics at the University of North Carolina, has this great book on rhetoric and its Christian and secular tradition throughout time. And uh, in it, he talks about the first progymnosmata or preliminary exercises book that we have from a rhetorical teacher named Aelius Theon. Aelius Theon um, worked in Alexandria, so northern Egypt, and he did something very like narration as his main teaching method. Let me quote here from what, I, um, what George Kennedy said about this. The earliest surviving treatment of progymnosmata is the work of Aelius Theon a teacher in Alexandria at the middle of the first century after Christ. In Theon's method of teaching, a passage was read aloud and students were first required to listen and then try to write it out from memory. After gaining skill in doing this, they were given a short passage and asked to paraphrase it and to develop and amplify it or seek to refute it. And here's our real, our first step in the history of narration. We can see a couple things there. First, in Aelius Theon's recommendations or his method of teaching there, he is reading aloud for students from a passage of a text. And he doesn't have them dictate it while he's going. Dictation exercises we know about common in the training of a scribe or anyone learning to write in early stages to hear a text read out and then have to try and copy it word for word as exactly as you could. That's clearly not what's going on here for Aelius Theon. While he's reading, the students are required only to listen. Listen as closely and attentively as they can and then be prepared once the passage is done 
to write out from memory as much as they can from that text. And we could imagine how for Ilias Theon, there were some great benefits to having students do this. It's focusing their minds. They're learning to listen and take in a rich, probably complex text and then accurately reproduce that. And you could imagine how for orators in training, the ability to actually respond to the points that someone had been making would have been incredible, incredibly helpful and uh, powerful to be able to take what someone said, amplify it, refute it, is the kind of natural next step. So you have this foundation stone of narration where our students are required to be able to know on one hearing a whole passage. They can show that by practicing fluency with their writing as they write it out in detail, trying to remember exact words and phrases. And then they can build upon that skill the ability then to analytically interact with the text or passage that they had heard and taken in. So this is the first step of narration being used. And again, just hearing that, you know, written narration being used, the hearing of this text as it's read aloud by the teacher, Ilias Theon, makes you think of Mason's recommendations for how narration would be used as a kind of regular staple and book-based education for Victorian England students. Now, the next step I want to go to, um, the next route in the classical antiquity of narration is Quintilian. I've already mentioned Quintilian, but he adds another step in there. He talks about how students should relate orally the fables of Aesop which follow next after the nurse's stories. In plain language, not rising at all above mediocrity, and afterwards to express the same simplicity in writing. So there are a couple things to note there. The first is that um, Quintilian is having this process start earlier, before they know how to write. Um, students should even hear you know, they're going to hear the nurses' stories from when they're really little and then when they graduate to Aesop's fables and potentially start going off to a grammaticus or having a tutor come to them, they can be trained already at that point to tell back the stories and fables of Aesop. This is a, a great step because it's going to tie students' oral spoken fluency to what they're then going to be able to take in by texts. It can start even earlier than their ability to write. And then notice how he recommends that once they are able to write later on, they can do the same in writing. So we've got that extra step built in there. And then he goes on after that point to talk about what they can do with poetry, narrating poetry. He says, let them learn too to take to pieces the verses of the poets and then to express them in different words and afterwards to represent them somewhat boldly in a paraphrase in which it's allowable to abbreviate or embellish certain parts, provided that the sense of the poet be preserved. 
And then he concludes, he who shall successfully perform this exercise, which is difficult even for accomplished professors, will be able to learn anything. So that's that final step there of taking the verses of poets and reproducing or paraphrasing them, I think is another move. You can imagine how just a story like from Aesop or a basic text wouldn't be easier to narrate than to take something like a poem, which is rich, filled with all sorts of images, and you have to really work to interpret and understand before you can then transfer it into prose. This is a great moment here. Now, some might read that passage and have an objection, wonder maybe what Quintin, Quintilian's talking about here is students actually having the poem in front of them and performing more of an analytical exercise where they just transfer, you know, line by line, this poem into prose and add on where they want or subtract where they want which is a different sort of thing than narration, right? If you have the poem in front of you and then you can do this sort of exercise, you could do it. It's still a good rhetorical training activity. Uh, I can think of Benjamin Franklin putting himself through the paces in something similar, using articles or essays to train himself in style and fluency where he would translate back and forth into different ways of saying each sentence. Um, but it's worth questioning whether that's what uh, Quintilian has in mind here. Certainly he doesn't talk about explicitly them having the poem in front of them. And I would argue that in the ancient world like this where scrolls cost money, paper is very expensive, students are by and large using wax tablets in order to write out what they write out. And while you can have multiple pages to a wax tablet, and sometimes they would do that, it uh, still is at least, I think, more likely that he is envisioning the teacher having the poem, reading it aloud to the students, and then the students interacting with the poem. Um, he just did not have a copier and a teacher's lounge in the back room that he could go and make copies from his old college textbook of this particular poem, right? Teachers in the ancient world didn't generally work like that. Text cost a lot of money if you were going to have something preserved like that. And it's unlikely that there would be copies for every student. Of course, it's possible. I mean, students certainly did copy out, do a uh, transcription of a particular text, like a poem or something like that. Um, could they have done that and then another? It's possible. But again, I, I think that it, it is at least as likely that Quintilian is envisioning narration here. And the fact that he goes on to say that a person who can do this, a student who can do this, which is hard for even professors to do will be able to learn anything probably indicates that what they're being asked to do is pretty challenging indeed. And I don't think it's quite as challenging, perhaps doesn't qualify to that level if we're talking about them having the poem in front of them and then just translating that into different ways of saying the same thing. That's a great little task, but I don't think it's nearly as difficult as being able to hear a poem 
and then write and translate it out and amplify and develop it in ways that you want uh, thereafter. So we have two great classical roots of, of the practice of narration here, first in Aelius Theon and then in Quintilian. And really, if we think about it, there's a seed behind these roots here. There's a seed of oral narration being used in pre-literate societies. We can see that literacy is very present in the classical world and because of the alphabet in Phoenicia and Greece has absolutely transformed civilization. But going back way before that, you can imagine in a society without writing, the only way that education could have happened, the only way that you could pass on a wisdom saying or a story, some bit of knowledge or insight about how to perform a particular task, the only way you could do that would be through narration, through tellings and retellings and corrections of tellings that a society would naturally do. And in a day and age where people weren't inundated with texts and with entertainment of one kind or another, you can imagine how people would naturally tell back any important interaction that they had. Any great story, you're out in the field afterwards, you have a fire as you're cooking, what's gonna happen in your mind but telling back what you learned or took in that was of interest that day. I think we really, in our text-dominant modern society, underrate the ability of early peoples to be able to hear and know through either silent retellings to themselves or the numerous retellings to one another in family situations, tribal, cultural situations, it's just all there. And so because of that, I think it was inevitable that in the classical era, some people would figure out a solution to the problem of how to get the text that we have into the heads of our students. It, it just makes sense that rhetorical teachers would come up with this. I don't want to underrate or undervalue the brilliance of the pedagogical insights of either Aelius Theon or Quintilian or the many other unnamed uh, rhetorical teachers and professors who may have used narration-like techniques all through. Um, but I think, it, I think it was just part of the context. We should see narration as naturally growing in this process from seed to roots here in the classical era. A final note that I want to make as I continue to think through these classical roots of narration in antiquity is actually to sidestep to Plato for a minute and the problem as he saw it. Plato Socrates in the dialogue Phaedrus famously talks about the problem of writing and how with the invention of writing, people aren't actually going to get better at memory or wiser than get worse. In this famous passage near the end of the dialogue Phaedrus, Socrates is talking with Phaedrus and he tells this myth. He retells this story of an ancient Egyptian king called Thamus. And 
the god Thoth appearing to him, who was an inventor of many arts, including writing, kind of a wisdom and magic god in ancient Egyptian mythology. But Thoth um, is praising all these different arts that he's revealing to uh, the king, the pharaoh. And he talks about writing in particular and says how it's going to be such a benefit to the learning of the Egyptian people. It's going to make them wiser and make them learn more. And the king responds back and says, I understand that you invented this and so you're going to say the best things about it, but really I think you've judged things incorrectly. Actually the opposite of what you say is going to happen is going to happen. The fact that we will have writing means now that we will become more forgetful. We will not improve in memory. You've, you've provided a great tool for reminder, but not for memory. Because people have writing, they will rely on the reminder and not on pulling out from within, recalling from within what they will have learned. And that'll make them able to go through a whole host of matter very quickly without actually learning any of it fully. They will seem to be wise, but not be actually wise. And I think what Plato or Socrates is doing here is completely anticipating the problem that as we've moved from a more hearing dominant, oral and spoken and listening culture to a more text dominant culture, forgetfulness reigns. I mean, just think of the problem of the internet nowadays. You can look up anything, so why should you learn anything for yourself? Why should you rely on your memory at all? You can just take your phone and search on Wikipedia. You don't need to remember anything. But we tell this to ourselves because remembering is hard work. And so I think this problem of the forgetfulness induced by writing that Plato put his finger on is akin to the problem that of inattention that Charlotte Mason was talking about in our last blog article. The problem of how do you get students to attend well enough that things go into their long-term memory? And the answer that our early rhetorical teachers discovered for us was you force them to not rely on the text, to retrieve from memory immediately what they took in, uh, to do that both through spoken means, through orally telling back what you've heard, and through written means, through writing out for yourself what you just heard based on memory. And we know from modern research on retrieval practice that that type of activity is one of the most important and powerful ways to secure durable learning, long-term retention, because we're signaling to our brain, this is worth remembering. We tried really hard to remember it. Maybe you should wire that neural pathway, wrap some myelin around it so that we can retrieve it later reliably. This is the first step or first stage in the history of narration, the classical roots of narration. And all I've said so far is just to point in the direction of how narration has this long history. It solves this perennial problem of how to not forget, but how to 
from a text, learn something reliably and actually grow in wisdom. I'm looking forward to next installment where we will see the rebirth of narration in the Renaissance and Reformation period with figures like Erasmus and Comenius, and even probably dip into um, Enlightenment period and John Locke and how he critiqued the classical education uh, techniques of his day that had lost this deep well of narration, this foundational practice on which so much else in the intellectual life is based. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day.